There is not much known about the personal life of the prophet Isaiah. All we really learn is what he tells us in Isaiah 1.1, which we did not read tonight, but that you may have heard or remember that he is the son of someone named Amos, and that he prophesied in the reign of the kings of Judah. You heard a few of their names already, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you want to know more about what that kingdom looked like that he was in prophesying about, you can come to Bible study on Sunday mornings. We are actually just about there in the kings of Judah, just on the precipice of talking about those kings specifically. So it works out pretty well that we are talking about his prophet Isaiah at this time. Nonetheless, even though not much is known about this prophet of God, personally, that does not stop him from being a prolific prophet, a prolific writer of scripture writing by length the fifth longest book of the Bible, the Holy Spirit inspiring him to do such, and also one of the most popular books of the Bible, especially among the prophets. I would say it is maybe the most popular prophetic book. Many, many of your favorite passages, some of which you may have already heard tonight, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or for unto us a child is born to us, a son is given. I can go on and on. Many of these passages so fond in your hearts are from Isaiah. You'll hear more of them over the next five weeks. And for this, sometimes it is called because of its comfort, because of its familiarity, because of its fondness, because of its popularity, called the fifth gospel. As if, I think Luther called it that. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you might as well tag on Isaiah just because he's so important and so comforting. And so I would add this clear. And it is that clarity which Isaiah brings us tonight and will bring us over the next weeks by which we can see this message that he has. A clear message, a simple message, a message that was needed back in the time of Uzziah and Hezekiah, and Ahaz, and Jotham. Also a message needed for God's people all throughout the rest of their history, even in the time of Jesus, who often quotes Isaiah himself. A message needed for Christians ever since the time of Jesus, needed for us now, tonight. That simple message, that clear message, is this, judgment leading to hope, old leading to new. He will often paint the picture of the old city, Jerusalem, leading to the new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Sin leading to forgiveness. Impurity leading to cleanliness. That is the simple message of Isaiah, that you have judgment, sin, something old, something not right, 
leading to something perfect, beautiful, wonderful, righteous. And with that simple message, the part that we want to look at tonight from this first major section of Isaiah, including so many wonderful things for us, we could not even scratch the surface. I do encourage you to read through Isaiah at the same time we are preaching through Isaiah. You can pick up one of the new March messengers out today on the tables, and there is a reading plan starting tonight going through the end of Lent, right before Easter, going all the way to Holy Saturday, which will allow you in one or two chapters a day to read through the entire book of Isaiah if you would like to do that with us. So you can go a little bit deeper than we can go tonight. In that simple message that we hear tonight, in this first section of Isaiah, and these collection of passages, the thing we want to look at is that leading to, the in-between. What happens to get from the impurity, what happens to get from the old, what happens to get from the sin, to get to the forgiveness, to get to the new, to get to the life and the wonderful beauty. And so we'll start with the passage from chapter 1. You can tell things are bad whenever Isaiah calls Judah not by the name Judah, not by the name Israel, but by the names Sodom and Gomorrah. That old city from so long ago in Genesis 18 that has become paradigmatic for the prophets in their uncleanness. That old city from long ago that exchanged, in the words of Paul, natural relations for unnatural ones. That old city long ago that committed those gross acts against God's law. And Isaiah calls you to this because they are impure. They have given themselves over by some evil kings to paganism, committing similar kinds of gross acts. And so he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah, but then he chastises them for pretending like they're not. He says, you continue to sacrifice to me in the temple. You continue to offer these sacrifices week in and week out, the blood of goats and bulls, but I don't need that, says the Lord. As the Lord says in Psalm 50, if you remember this verse, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Why would I need those sacrifices? But what Judah is doing is they're going through the motions of Christianity and they're pretending like that's going to cover their grossness or their impurity. And they are acting in vain. They are knowingly, willfully sinning against the Lord on the one hand and then walking into the temple and pretending like it's all all right. So there is impurity and the Lord must say this, wash, make yourselves clean. And so the judgment on Judah is this, you cannot 
casually, on one hand, just continue to do what you want, when you want, pretending as if there is no sin in your life, while kind of going through the motions of Christianity, on the other hand, assuming that that will be enough to save you. We call that Pharisaism. Thinking that you have a system in your own head that you can get to Jesus, but you don't actually need Jesus actively in your heart. And that judgment shows how unclean you are. It shows how unclean I am. It shows that God wants for us a living faith. But what is amazing is what he says next in verse 18. Is that the Lord himself, after he gives this judgment, he says, now come. Come, let us reason together. He says, let's figure this out, friend. Come, let us reason together. And you would think he'd say, okay, now here's the deal. You're going to stop what you're doing and you're going to change the way that you act and you're going to start to do the right thing and then maybe I'll forgive you. He doesn't say that. He says, come, let us reason together. You're a sinner. I know that. But though your sins be like the blood of scarlet, though your sins be that stark color crimson, they will be as white as snow. I will wash them away. And so the first thing that we learn about this in-between to get from judgment to hope, to get from sin to forgiveness is this, that God himself, the Lord himself, will have to do it. He's the one who invites us in faith to reason together. He's the one who invites us to trust in him. He's the one who says, I forgive your sin. Your sins will be forgiven. Not by you, not by your works, not by your sacrifices of blood, of goats and bulls on some altar. Not by you going through the motions of Christianity by me, by my command. And so that brings us then to chapter 6, where Isaiah now is going to personally embody and experience this reality himself. I think for Isaiah to powerfully preach as he will in the rest of the book, the Lord invites him to come and experience this in-between, going from judgment, going to hope, going from impurity to cleanness himself. And so he invites him into his temple and gives him the most amazing vision, perhaps one of the most amazing visions, perhaps recorded in Scripture. The Lord Almighty comes into the temple with him. He sees the Lord in his glory, something not even Moses was allowed to see. And the train of his robe filled the temple and angels were there and it was bright and the posts themselves were shaking. He could not barely handle it. But the first thing he knew is that he should not be by his own sin in that kind of holiness. It was like he had flown too close to the sun and he was going to get burned up. And so he said, woe, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. I have spoken things I should not speak. I have thought things I should not think. I have done things I should not do. Woe, woe to me. 
But remember what we already learned in Isaiah 1. The Lord will be the one to cleanse him. And so the Lord sends him an angel. One of the seraphim flies down and gets one of the burning coals off the altar to make those sacrifices. And he comes and he presses it against Isaiah's lips. And so what we learn here is that this in-between to go from impurity to purity involves purification. But not just purification by washing your hands in a sink with some nice scented soap. Not something like that. Purification by fire. By burning. By suffering. That is what Isaiah must go through. I imagine it was not very comfortable to have a red-hot coal pressed against your lips. Not something I would like to have done to me anytime soon. But sometimes what does not feel good is what is best for you. Sometimes it is the suffering that is the purifying fire in your life, and sometimes God wants to purify you by taking you through fire, burning burning away the dross from your life, so that what remains is the precious gold. And so that now brings us to Ahaz. In chapter 7, a king, very different character than Isaiah, the prophet, Ahaz, a wicked king. Ahaz, who Isaiah prophesies to and encourages him to go to the Lord, and Ahaz says, seemingly piously, but it's fake, that he doesn't need to talk to the Lord. And so Isaiah says, fine, you don't want to talk to the Lord, the Lord will talk to you. And you can read the context there that the point of this is that Judah, because of Ahaz's wickedness and the wickedness of Judah as a whole, will be sent into exile. The Babylonians will come and they will take them away and that will be for them the purifying fire that they need. That will be for them the thing that will bring them to their knees in repentance. And so even though Ahaz doesn't listen, the Lord speaks. And he sends the purifying fire. And what is more amazing about this is not only does he send exile and the purifying fire, but he says out of this, there will be something even better that comes. It won't just burn away the dross and leave the good, but even better things will come. Behold, there will be a virgin and she will conceive and she will bear a son. And they shall call his name God with us, Emmanuel. Out of this purifying fire, the Lord will send to you himself. The Lord will accomplish it. That's the first thing. It will be through a purifying fire. That's the second thing. And the third thing is this, is that after that purifying fire, God himself will provide for you better things. And so this Lent, as we are going through, a purifying fire of sorts as we are looking at our sins, repenting of our sins, and looking towards the hope that is to come at Easter. I want you to think about these things, how the Lord is working the repentance in you, how he is the one who is doing it, and how it is 
painful at times. It is painful to look into ourselves and to admit that we have sin we need to repent of. But then also look at this, the better things he will provide. The vices that you are shedding and getting rid of in this purifying fire of repentance, what virtues will come after that? The sin that you are repenting of, what great gifts of forgiveness will come after that, these false gods that you are putting away, what renewed love for your God will come after that. And that brings us finally to chapter 9, the well-known Christmas passage. For to us, the child is born. To us, the son is given and his name is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is what God had planned for Judah and for all his people from of old. This is what he had planned for you before you were even born. That he would give you Jesus. Out of the purifying fires that he sends in your life, he would would give you Jesus. And notice the context of how Jesus comes, how the child is born. It's not what you'd expect thinking about Christmas. It is a war. Notice verses 4 and 5. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. As in the day of Midian, every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning the fuel of fire. It is no doubt that there was a purifying fire to come for the people. And the thing about that purifying fire is that not everyone makes it. Some fights on the wrong side of the battle, so to speak. And they die. And their garments are rolled in blood and they are burned in the fire of hell. And that is the judgment that Isaiah brings. He's not light in his gospel hope, but he's also not light in his judgment either. This is the judgment that comes. It is what he does. But yet, out of that fire, even out of the war, the bloody, bloody war, comes this king, an everlasting king. It is clear for Isaiah that he frames the coming of Jesus in terms of the kingdoms of this earth, and we can even just say the kingdom of this earth run by the prince of this world, the devil, against a better kingdom that is coming, the old and the new, the earthly and the heavenly. And the kingdom that comes, not only is it a better thing, like we already talked about, but it is more than better, it is perfect. It is wonderful, it is mighty, and it is, hear this, everlasting. It does not go away. And so, dear saints, let this Lent for you again be this purifying fire. Be an in-between time in your life where you are moving from judgment to hope, 
where you are moving from the old to something new, where you are moving from sin to forgiveness and new life. A time in your life when the Lord is now working in you to bring you through that. And yes, it may hurt. Yes, it may be a purifying, a purifying fire. Remember the words of that old hymn we all like. When through fiery trials your pathway will lie, my grace all-sufficient will be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. But out of that fire, the Lord will bring you better things. He brings you exactly where he knows that you need to go. And he brings you a savior. The Savior who was born, the Savior who lived, and the Savior who died for you, and that is Jesus Christ, your King. And his kingdom is come. We continue to pray for his kingdom to come, and his kingdom does come, and his kingdom is here, and you are a citizen of that kingdom. No longer a citizen of that old world, now a citizen of this new world, no longer tied down to all that sin and dross, but now refined a precious treasure of the Lord's yourself. And he provides you everything you need. And on the last day, which Isaiah will talk about, the new heavens and the new earth to come, on the last day, that kingdom will come to its complete fruition when the new Jerusalem is established and he is sitting on his throne and you will be there and you will praise him without end, never having to be purified again. To him be all the honor and glory now and forever. Amen.